following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. If you weren't here at the beginning or didn't hear me say it, I'm, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Artisan Church, and I'm so glad that you are all here, um, especially those of you who are visiting with us. You know, there's kind of a running joke in church circles that uh, some people go to church every week, and some people only go to church twice a year on Christmas and on Easter. It was even the, remember that Simpsons gag that had the, the church sign that said, Welcome Semi-Annual Worshippers? <laughs> we don't change our sign to say that, but we do want to welcome you. And listen, um, I, I always tell people, don't make fun of people who go to church only once in a while. Like, welcome them to church. Don't be such a jerk about it. Um, so I'm so glad that you're all here. Uh, if that describes you especially, I'm glad you're here. Uh, today's gospel reading comes from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. And if you'd like to follow along in the Red Bibles that we've provided, it's on page 811. But you can just listen. That's always a good way to to take in the Scriptures as well. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of these with you. We'd love to have you take that as our gift. This is the story of the resurrection of Jesus. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee, there you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So this is the story of the resurrection. This is the uh, account that draws us together on Easter Sunday. And uh, the cry of the church on this day is, He is risen. He is risen indeed. And we will get to that. Because that is why we're here. But I would like to, to get there a little bit slowly, because if we have any hope of understanding the meaning of the resurrection, I think we have to understand the meaning of the crucifixion, which is to say if we uh, have any hope of understanding uh, the life of Jesus and what that means for us, we have to understand his death and what that means for us. Jesus himself said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And that was true for him. And it will come to be true for all of us as well. But to activate the power that's present in that statement, I think, requires us to look back to the cross. Now, many of you were here on Friday night at 11 p.m. when we had our Good Friday Tenebrae service. Um, where we experienced a visceral reminder of the death of Jesus. 
Some of you didn't know we had that or weren't able to be there or just decided that you weren't going to that type of service. You avoided it. (laughs) Because it seems very hard to dwell on such an ugly event. Why spend so much time pondering such a horrifying thing? I can hardly blame you for that. For many years, I would have felt the same way. Good Friday was not my favorite religious holiday growing up. Um, For many years, well into adulthood, I would have said to you that I think the crucifixion is the ugliest part of the Christian story. It's something that you get past and something that you get through on your way to Easter, right? Let's just get to Easter, where I can wear my slightly more dressy button-up shirt and (laughs) the the sun will hopefully be shining and we can celebrate with... um, eggs (laughs) and uh, ham for some reason. (laughs) You know, in a similar way, growing up in the Protestant evangelical world, as I did, uh, when when we would drive past the, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and I would see the crucifixes, I would say, why do the Catholics keep Jesus up on the cross when there was a resurrection? Why? Why is Jesus on the cross? Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. Anybody ever feel that way if you were raised in that same tradition like I was? Some of you were raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, and then I got a little bit older. And you, you, you come to this realization when you get older that it turns out not everybody was raised in the exact same faith tradition that you were. And not everybody believes the same things that you believe. And I started to encounter people who were not Christians. And... Uh, to hear some skepticism from them and some criticism of Christianity and the Christian story that it turns out I didn't have a very good answer for. Maybe you've heard this criticism before. Maybe, maybe you've made this criticism before. Maybe you make this criticism of Christianity all the time. Maybe somebody dragged you here today because it's Easter. I'm so sorry. Um, I hope that you at least got a cookie. <laughs> right. uh, or try our, our coffee is really good too. <laughs> Um, but tell me if you've heard this before, something like this. What kind, of, what kind of bloodthirsty God sets up a system where, because He is so angry at you and me for our sins, that He has to satisfy His wrath by killing His only Son? For God so loved the world? What kind of love is that? And I didn't, uh, I didn't have much of a good answer for that. I believe now the reason I didn't have a good answer for that is because there is no good answer for that. If that's what you think is happening at the crucifixion, there's no good defense against it. But it's th- that description of the crucifixion is close enough to how we evangelicals talk about the purpose of Jesus' death and what it means for us that it really kind of stung to hear that criticism. It hit me very deep at the, kind of the root of my being. If that's what's happening at the crucifixion, then frankly, I think it probably is the most ugly moment in the Christian story. And it's no wonder that we're anxious to get past it and through it to Easter. But, oh, I have good news. I have good news, and I 
just hope and pray that I can help you to see this the way that I now see it, because the way that I see it now has is changed a little bit. It's a little bit different. And because of that change in the way I see it, I, I've come to believe that the crucifixion, far from being the ugliest moment in the Christian story, is actually one of the most beautiful moments in the Christian story. And I'm so thankful to our Catholic friends for keeping Jesus on the cross so that we can see it, so that we can see him in that moment. Because that picture of Jesus on the cross, crowned of thorns and mocked and smitten, as one of our favorite hymns says, it rings truer and more beautifully for me now than it ever did in my whole life of faith. And I just pray that I can help you see it in the next few minutes because it changed my world. So, to get to this beautiful understanding of of this day and of this whole weekend, I want us to ask ourselves and answer for ourselves three questions. Here are the three questions I'm going to ponder together with you and hopefully share answers with you that you enjoy as much as I do. The first question is, who killed Jesus? The second question is, how did Jesus respond? And the third question is, well, what does any of that have to do with us? Or, if you want to put the more kind of religious language around it, the third question could be, how does that save us? So let's ask and answer that first question. Who killed Jesus? I've already hinted to you that the, the story as it's been told uh, so many times is that God killed Jesus and uh, God the Father killed Jesus the Son so that He wouldn't have to kill you and me, right? No. I should pause here to say, my parents are in the room right now and they never told the story to me this way. I just want you to know, mom and dad did not say to me, uh, God killed Jesus so he didn't have to kill you. <laughs> That's a little bit of a paraphrase of, of kind of what was in the air <laughs> uh, in, my, in my broader church and religious world, okay? <laughs> just so you know, don't yell at them on the way out. I'm so grateful for the foundation and faith that they gave me. Um, So the answer in standard form is something along those lines, though, that God killed Jesus so that he wouldn't have to kill you and me. And if you work with that for any length of time or extrapolate it just a little bit, then basically the answer to the question, who killed Jesus, becomes me. I did. I killed Jesus. Because if it's my sin that put him on the cross, then it's my fault. I stole a grape from the grocery store when I was nine years old, The Bible says, thou shalt not steal. And so up goes Jesus onto the cross to save me from my sin. But the truth is that the answer to the question, who killed Jesus, is that it was the Romans who killed Jesus. It was the Roman Empire that made the crosses where they crucified insurrectionists, which is what they deemed Jesus to be, and it was the Romans who put him on the cross. And the Roman Empire was in collusion with a corrupt religious establishment. It happened to be Jewish in that time. And it was that corrupt religious establishment that put Jesus on the cross. And both of these groups were egged on at every step by mobs of angry, selfish people. 
It wasn't because I stole a grape. It wasn't because you cheated on your taxes last month. Well, I bet some of you did. (laughs) It wasn't because of this sin or that sin or the other sin. These little individual things are not what put Jesus up on that cross. But hey, I'm not about to let you off the hook. I don't leave now feeling super good about yourself because it's going to get ugly before it gets pretty again, I can promise you. Because it is true to say that my sin put him on the cross. It is true to say that your sin put him on the cross or to speak of it in the terms that the Bible typically uses, it's true to say that our sin put him on the cross. Our sin is what killed Jesus. That's true, but it's the way that it's true that matters. And the way that it's true is not that our sin killed Jesus because there's an angry God up there that needs to be appeased by a blood sacrifice. This would be very more, much more like pagan religion than the truth of Christianity. The the way that it is true that our sin kills Jesus is that those same systems of violent, overwhelming, powerful empire on the one hand and corrupt religious establishment on the other are still present in some form in our world today and we are complicit in those systems. And by the way, half the time we're part of the angry mob too. So those systems that nailed him to that cross and left him there to die, some of them are, are still present in our world. And we're complicit in them. So, my sin puts him on the cross. Every time I seek to leverage the systems of government, of empire, to dominate and control other people for my gain. My sin puts him on the cross every time I put the needs of myself above the needs of others, whether that's by conscious, intentional acts of selfishness, or whether it's by dint of systems that are in place that tend to favor me and people like me over others. Systems which, let's be honest, I'm perfectly happy just to leave the way they are. My sin puts him on the cross whenever I turn to systems set up by human powers to push down and oppress entire classes of people so that my class of people, whatever it might happen to be, doesn't have to stand on the very lowest rung of the ladders to success and liberty and independence. My sin puts him on the cross whenever my personal freedom is guaranteed by bloodshed and violence and conquest. These were the sins of the Roman Empire. These are the sins that killed Jesus. And these are my sins and your sins as well. Our sins put Him on the cross. Whenever we sing His praises on the day of worship and then go on to hate and shame our neighbors every other day of the week. Our sin kills Jesus when we use our houses of worship as fortresses to exclude people who are different from us or whom we don't understand. Our sin puts Jesus on the cross whenever we use the rules of religion to tell people that they are outside the circle of God's love. 
Our sin puts Jesus on the cross again whenever we see difference and define it as deficiency in Jesus' name. These were the sins of the corrupt religious establishment of Jesus' day. These are the sins that killed Jesus. And these are the sins that still exist in some manner now. It means that they are our sins as well, particularly the sins of those of us who call ourselves religious. The sins of violent empire and unrestrained religious oppression that put Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago, unfortunately, still exist today. And when we don't stand up and fight against them and push them back and reject them, we are complicit in his death. That's how our sin puts Jesus on the cross. It's the the deep sins of society, (laughs) so deeply woven into the fabric of our lives and into the fabric of our faith that it seems impossible. We despair of ever being able to unwind them. At this point, you're probably wishing I'd said it was the grape. (laughs) Come on, Pastor, it's Easter. Take it easy. (laughs) So that's the answer to the first question. Who killed Jesus? Rome? The Jewish establishment? And us? The answer to the second question, though, that's where things start to get very, very beautiful. Remember the second question? How did Jesus respond? Well, then, and I would say now, Jesus, his response is world altering. Especially when you start to think about how Jesus could have responded. Jesus, though being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped or something to be exploited, it says in Philippians 2, but he emptied himself and took the form of a slave. Jesus, who could have called down legions of angels to wipe that corrupt Roman empire off the map, to clean up all the messes that the religion of his day had made, that could have quieted that angry mob, chose instead to respond with submission to the death, love for those who committed the act, and forgiveness. Father, forgive them, he says, for they know not what they do. And like that, the cycle can be broken. Because how else can you respond to that kind of forgiveness but with your own forgiveness that you have to then extend to other people? See, here's my theory. Here's my theory about why we think that God is full of wrath and anger and is on the war path seeking retribution. Why, this is my theory about why we interpret every passage of Scripture that's remotely ambiguous about the nature of God in the direction of wrath and anger rather than in the direction of love and forgiveness. It's because we want God to be like us more than we want to be like God. We want a God who's made in our image rather than being made into His image. That's how we want to respond to sin and violence against us, isn't it? 
So we create a picture of God and we twist Scripture in such a way that supports that picture of God so that it all matches up nicely and we have then, then we have religious support for our own selfishness and our own addiction to violence. But you can see that this is exactly backwards, can't you? This is my theory. You'll either love it or you'll hate it. We want God to look like us more than we want to look like God. Because if we were really following Jesus, then instead of bombing the bleep out of our enemies, as our current president has said, or instead of 563 drone strikes in eight years under the previous president, and instead of regime change under the previous, previous president, we would love our enemies so much that we would love them to the point of our own death, and in the moment of our death, we would speak forgiveness to those enemies. That is the model that Jesus presents. That's the way of Jesus, but that is way too radical for us, and we have no interest in it. No one wants any part of it. So the answer to the first question, who killed Jesus, is, in the end, us. And the answer to the second question, how does Jesus respond, is that Jesus responds with love and forgiveness. And on to the final question, which is, what does any of that have to do with us? Or again, to use the more religious language, um, how does that save us? How does Jesus' death save us? Well, Let me explain it in a couple of ways. The first way is good news for those of you who just got dragged into this room today because it's Easter and you don't actually have any capacity to believe any of the supernatural side of the religious teaching that I'm presenting to you. Um, Because I think the first way that Jesus' death can save us actually could apply to all of us regardless of whether we believe in any of the religious spiritual stuff. And that's that Jesus' death could save us in some measure by his example, if we followed it. If we followed the way, and by the way, before the Christians in the early church were ever called Christians, they were called followers of the way, capital W, because it seemed to be about following in the footsteps of Jesus and doing what he did. That was the way. If we were all truly, completely followers of the way of Jesus Can you see how the world might change? If every single one of us, without fail, responded to anger and violence against us with love and forgiveness, I know it's a complete pipe dream, it's a a fantasy, it will never happen, so let's not bother trying, but can you imagine how different the world would be? If we looked to Jesus on that cross, crowned of thorns and mocked and smitten, saying, forgive them, Father, and actually took it to heart enough to do it ourselves, can you imagine what the world would be like? So you can try that, even if you don't believe any of this other stuff. I do have to warn you, though, sometimes behavior precedes belief. So don't try too hard, or it might just get its hooks into you.
But the other way, the more kind of complete and utter way that Jesus' death saves us and matters to us is because we believe that that death was not the end of the story. We believe that the power of God overcame the systems of evil, both human and spiritual, once and for all. We believe that God raised this Jesus whom you crucified. That's how the apostles preach of it sometimes. This Jesus whom you crucified. We believe God raised him from the dead. And that we are to be raised along with him into new life. Do you remember that passage I read from Colossians 3 at the call to worship? If you're raised with Christ. We're to be raised with him into new life. And that doesn't just mean in some distant eternal future in the sweet by and by. It means that we are to be raised to new life today, now, right now. And that that life can become real in us and in our neighborhoods and in our cities and in our country and in our world. Because we also believe that although the victory has been won, there is still work left to be done. I said that earlier in the first service, not realizing that it rhymed. And I thought, wow, that's a good rhyme. I'm going to say it again. We believe that although the victory has been won, there is still more work to be done. Still more love to be shared. More forgiveness to spread to more enemies. More of Christ and the fullness of His gospel. The good news of God's great love. To be carried around through our families into our neighborhoods, into our cities, in our country, and around the world. We believe, we believe, we believe. The good news of Easter is not that Jesus saves us from the wrath of His Father. The good news of Easter is that love actually does win. Whereas the psalmist says, once again to use the more religious language, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So if you've been raised with Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, seek the things that are above. Now let me give you a little little, tiny brief grammatical diversion here because the word if seems to be a, a conditional, right? If you've been raised with Christ, do this. But if not, don't worry about it. That's one way that you can use the word if. But you can also use the word if. Have you ever used the word if to kind of mean since? You hear this difference? Like, if you've been raised with Christ, you better seek the things that are above. That's the, that's the cause and effect of it all. And you have been raised with Christ. So seek the things that are above. And hear the words of the risen Christ that He spoke to the women on the road. Do you remember that the women left the tomb? How were they, how were they feeling, careful listeners? They had two things going on. They left with fear and joy. Have you ever felt fear and joy at the same time? Mm. And, and, and Jesus meets them on the road and he sees that they're afraid and full of joy and he says, why are you so happy all the time? Stop being so joyful. <laughs> no, he doesn't. What he says to them is, do not be afraid. And if you have fear and joy and you take away fear, what is left? The joy of the Lord is what's left. So do not be afraid, my friends. Good Friday, the crucifixion, it should not make you scared of God. 
It should make you bless God for the beauty of His sacrifice and His unending, bottomless love for each one of us. Because that love won and it wins and it will win. And His love is for us all. So do not be afraid. Let's pray. Gracious God of love, we give you great thanks on this joyful day, not just for the beauty of the resurrection, but for the beauty of the crucifixion in which we see your heart perfectly represented in the self-sacrificial love of your son, Jesus. Help us always to see it and to see it first. May it be true for us that it is the love of Christ that draws us into holiness, not the fear of your wrath. Give us grace and courage and strength to carry this good news to our brothers and sisters, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our families, to our friends, to our cities, and to our world. Help us when we despair to remember that love does win and that your love for us is endless and bottomless. And it is not just an example for us, but it is the power of the resurrection and the triumph, the great victory of God over the systems of evil which oppress us and through which we oppress others. We want to walk in the way of Jesus and we ask for your Spirit's leading and guidance. Amen. Well, uh, we'll take communion in just a minute. But before we do, I want to uh, extend an invitation to all of you to come back here next week and for the next four weeks for something that we're doing together as a congregation We're all going to be reading this book together by Rowan Williams called Being Christian. It's a simple, very readable, digestible, but beautiful and deep little book about what Christians do. There's four chapters, four weeks, four topics. Baptism, Bible, Eucharist, and prayer. We'll spend one week on each of these. I would love it if all of you would come back next week to be part of this uh, as we begin this little short journey together. This book is only $6. Um, I sold out all of the copies that I pre-bought for our congregation this morning at the early service. Um, But you can get it on Amazon. If you have Amazon Prime, you'll get it quickly for $6. If you don't have Amazon Prime and you'd like to get a copy this week, talk to me and I will use the church's Amazon Prime (laughs) account to send it to you because I don't want you to miss out. Um, Being Christian by Rowan Williams. You uh, You could have the order placed before... You even come to the communion table if you're, if you're wicked quick like that. Um, but don't miss out on this. It's going to be a really wonderful time together. Um, and you, you, if you're visiting with us, you may be thinking, this is kind of weird. <laughs> uh, and I'm so glad that you stuck around. But come back for more weirdness next week as we explore this together, the depths of it. <laughs> uh, because one thing is true. It may be really different next week, but it's going to be weird again. I can promise you that. All right. Uh, Our communion table, where we uh, uh, remember and proclaim Christ's death, 
where we receive His body and His blood into our own body and blood as food for our souls, uh, is open to all who seek to follow Him in this place. You don't need to be a member of our church or of any church. We have an open table at Artisan. And you can come and dip a piece of the bread in one of the cups and receive it for yourself. May it be for you, His body and blood. May it be for you, uh, food for your hungry souls. And may it be for you an act of communion, unity with one another and with all the believers around the world who celebrate this today and who have celebrated throughout Christian history. Let me read to you this beautiful invitation, the Iona invitation. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is to be made ready for those who love Him and who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come not because it is I who invite you. It is our Lord. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. And our table is open. Our prayer team will be present at the back of the room if you'd like to receive personal prayer. And we'll sing another couple songs together as a congregation. Respond to the Word and to the Spirit's call in your life. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.